0: It was quite a wide range of questions, reflecting the wide range of minds in the room. Uh, we probably won't have a chance to go through all of them, but see how far we get. Karma and grace. How do you see these two? That was a big one. The law of karma in its simplest exposition means that every volitional action bears a certain fruit, brings a certain result, so that everything we do in our speech, with our body, all our actions, depending on the motivation behind it, whether it's motivated by greed, hatred, or delusion, which are the unwholesome roots, or by generosity, by love, by wisdom, which are the wholesome roots, each of these actions is a seed. That seed grows into a tree, and the tree bears many fruits, many results. There are a lot of subtleties to understanding this law of karma, and a lot of ways we can misunderstand it. Sometimes people hear of this law of moral cause and effect and it feels very deterministic or fatalistic, sort of like we're bound in this uh, mechanistic system. And that's just a superficial understanding of the complexity of the law. Because it's not as if a single action brings about a predetermined result. Rather, the action is a seed, and the seed is going to bring some result, but what result comes depends on a lot of different conditions. One of the conditions that it depends on, this seed coming to fruit, is the ongoing field of our minds. For example, when our minds are becoming purified, purified of the unwholesome forces of greed and hatred and delusion, there's less opportunity for the unwholesome actions in the past to actually come to fruition. And when they do come to fruition, they're actually modified by the present purity of our minds. Likewise, if we're involved in a lot of negativity, if we're living our lives in an ongoing way and our mind is filled with anger, or filled with hatred, or filled with fear, or greed, or delusion, that energy field of the mind draws to it the unwholesome actions of the past. It draws the fruit from those unwholesome actions. And so it's an ongoing dynamic system with our current actions continually feeding into the unfolding process. We also don't know when any seed actually will come to fruition. It can come to fruition in this lifetime, it can come in the next lifetime, it can come any time in the future. The Buddha listed a few things which he said, if we think too much about, drives us crazy. The law of karma is one of them. <laughs> because the complexity of it, the complexity of this interweaving you know, of mind forces and lives. You know, how are we to understand five lifetimes ago, we did something kindly, and this lifetime, we live in California.
1: <laughs>
0: How do we draw those connections? It, it takes the mind of a Buddha to, to work that one out. <laughs> so keep the kindly actions going. <laughs> okay, so where does grace fit into this, into this law of cause and effect? Actually grace is not a word that one finds in the Buddhist tradition. And so then the question is, well, given our own usage of it, our own understanding of it, is there anything that corresponds to that understanding? And in reflecting on this, reflecting on just okay, what what is this quality of grace? What is it in our lives? Not as a theological concept or a metaphysical concept, but actually what is that feeling? What is that experience of grace that we have? I reflected on it in two ways. One is the feeling of the spontaneity of phenomena the spontaneity of of the dharma, of how things are just arising now you're sitting, a thought comes. Did you invite the thought? Probably not. I mean, Sometimes you might. But more often than not, it just arises. They come uninvited. And the more we settle into this process, this process of who we are, this process of the mind and body, the process of the Dharma, we begin to have an appreciation for the mystery of it all, of its just continual arising and passing and arising and passing, following its own laws. And there's something very mysterious about this all, something that's outside of our control. So this is one way of understanding the grace of phenomena. Another way of understanding it and narrowing this, this sense of grace to the grace of blessings rather than to the grace of all phenomena simply arising, where do blessings come from? Where do blessings come from in our lives? There's a concept in the teachings of the Buddha which Stephen mentioned briefly the other night the concept of paramis. And this, this plays a critical role in understanding the source of blessing. Parami means the accumulated force of all our wholesome actions. Now in the long course of our evolution both in this lifetime and perhaps over many lifetimes, the power of purity in the mind that has been generated by acts of generosity, by acts of love and kindness, by deepening understandings of wisdom. There is a power which is generated, which is called parami, forces of purity. These become the karmic force which results in blessings accruing to us throughout our lives throughout this life and throughout future lives and so what i think is unique in some sense about understanding the feeling or or sense of grace from the perspective of buddha dharma is that it is not from an outside power, but rather it is from the nature of the law, the nature of the truth generated from within. The nature of the Dharma is that things are unfolding in a lawful way. These paramis that are generated and accumulated and developed and strengthened over many lifetimes, become this source within of blessing. There's one last sense of grace. I first started teaching when I came back uh, after quite a few years in India in 1974 at Naropa Institute in Colorado. And it was the first year that Naropa opened. Uh, they opened with this summer, summer program. Ramdas was there and Trungpa Rinpoche was there. And it was, I don't know if maybe some of you were also present, it was like a spiritual woodstock. It's like there was this huge gathering of people. And there was this tremendous spiritual excitement generated. And both Ramdas and Trungpa had these huge classes, 1,600 people basically everybody who came to the program three nights a week they'd listen to chungpa and three nights a week they'd listen to ramdas ramdas was speaking about the bhagavad gita and he was talking a lot about grace of god and devotion that was on monday wednesday friday <laughs> tuesday thursday and saturday Trungpa was talking about um, down-to-earth Buddhism, suffering and opening to the suffering and facing it. And, and then Ramdas would come and talk about divine bliss, and they went back and forth. That <laughs> <laughs> was great, and it really kept people's minds alive. Somebody asked Trungpa, after listening to Ram Dass's talks, where does grace fit into the Buddhist teachings? And he had a wonderful response. he said, patience is grace. I think there's a tremendously deep truth in that because that quality of patience opens our heart. It just opens our heart and allows what's to happen to happen. We're not rushing things and we're not impatient and we're not manipulating, we're not trying to control if we really settle back into that patience. So these are some ways, you know, of beginning to understand how the two ideas can come together. Is there a way that metta and vipassana practices are used in our own dying? and in being with others that are dying. I think it's crucial in many ways, in many times, I think of the practice as training for dying. You know, because here we sit and after 15 or 20 minutes, you know, there's a little pain in the knee and or big pain in the knee, <laughs> you know, and. Discomfort in the body and discomfort in the mind and we see what a struggle it is to actually open up in a balanced way to what's there. Probably, when we're dying, we're going to face more discomfort. Not necessarily, but it's a fair chance, you know, that we're going to be in some fair measure of pain, some fair measure of difficult emotions. Now that, that incredible journey into the unknown. How will we be able to relate to it? Will we be able to relate from a place of peace, of openness, of acceptance? Or will we be reacting with fear or with anxiety? Or you know, with panic? Or with terror? Every sitting, every walking... Every moment of, of our practice is an opportunity to really see, to train the mind. Can I open to this? Can I open to this? And the deeper we go in practice, the closer to the edges we get, the closer to our boundaries of what we're willing to be with. The next time you are facing some difficulty, just imagine that it is your dying moment. But actually, you're dying. How do you want to be relating to it? Now, in so many teachings in different spiritual traditions, there is this emphasis on keeping the awareness of death. Because it puts things in a very powerful perspective for us. It can take us out of our own little dramas, you know, that we get so caught up in and so invested in just puts everything in a much bigger picture. And so we can use that reflection now in terms of relating to what's happening and this practice will then carry over to the time of our own death. And I think in just the same way that we can be practicing Vipassana to really see what's going on, to practice metta, the loving-kindness, as a way of softening. If we're getting too tight or too reactive, or too caught up, and the mindfulness is not strong enough, go back to the loving-kindness, and take refuge in the loving-kindness until the mind becomes a little more peaceful, a little more balanced, and then again open up to whatever is (coughs) present. Not only do I see this as being so critical for how we're practicing now, for how we will be able to be at the time of our death, but also for how to be with people who are dying. Can we be generating that force of metta, that force of loving-kindness? Because if we can do it in a pure way and in a strong way, it has a calming effect. It's like radiating radiating some energy of peace. The Vipassana is essential if we're with somebody who's dying because it enables us to watch our own mind. It enables us to watch all the feelings that we're going through, all the reactions that we're going through, without getting caught up in them and without dumping our reactions onto the situation. You know, because it can be very intense can be a very intense circumstance, as things come up for us, can we open to them and let them wash through, settle back into the metta. So in both these ways, I think think these two practices are, are tremendously helpful. As a question for discussion, could you please speak some more about applying mindfulness to situations in which which emotions of anxiety and self-doubt, anger at oneself, etc., are running high? I had that one come up and it made the meditation seem sort of hopeless in the face of it. Emotions of anxiety, self-doubt, unworthiness, There's something we did at the beginning of the retreat which has a very deep meaning and that is the taking of refuge. And we took refuge in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, in the Sangha. And often people take this refuge as a ritual or a kind of ceremony and it functions on that level but it also has a much deeper and immediate meaning for us. What does taking refuge in the Buddha mean? You know, we're feeling anxiety, we're feeling self-doubt, we're feeling unworthy. If we take refuge in the Buddha, we really come back to that place in ourselves, it means that the bottom line for us is the acknowledgement of our own Buddha nature that we may have all of these difficult emotions come. We may have doubt and we may have anxiety, but by taking refuge in the Buddha, we're taking refuge in our own potential for Buddha mind, for enlightenment. And with that as a refuge, we then have the power to see the self-doubt and to see the anxiety, not as being something inherent in our makeup, not as being some something essentially which we are. But rather we see them as passing forces in the mind from that deeper place, from that deeper place of refuge, of refuge in our essential nature. Once when uh, the Dalai Lama was visiting uh, the center in Barry, Massachusetts, about ten years ago, somebody asked him a question about feelings of unworthiness and he gave a wonderful response. He, <laughs> he's always, in my experience, embodying this amazing amount of love and compassion. You just, you just feel this coming out of him. and In that moment it was even more so. You could just feel this wave of love for this person asking the question about unworthiness, feeling unworthy, and he said, you are wrong, you are absolutely wrong. (laughs) It was beautiful because it just cut through this investment that we make, this identification which we make in these mind states as being who we are. Because he knew very well, and as we all know, some, some place in us, That underneath the doubt, and underneath the anxiety, and underneath the fear, (laughs) we are all Buddha nature. I mean, that's, if not, what we'd be doing here would be hopeless. You know, we'd be trying to become something we're not. You know, how does that happen? But rather that nature is in us. We are that. We are the Dharma. And it's much more a process of realizing it, of just opening to what's there rather than trying to reach out for something. And so it's not to be misled you know, by these feelings. It's not to deny them. It's not to pretend that they're not there. Because they are there and they, they influence the mind in a certain way. But not to give them the import which they don't have taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge, settling right into the Buddha nature, right here. Refuge is a place of safety. And this understanding becomes a place of safety for us. It's a sanctuary of safety. What did the Buddha mean by egolessness? What is it that is deciding the ego doesn't exist? First, to make a clarification. The words ego and egolessness are often used in different ways in the realm of psychology and in the realm of Dharma, And because they're used in different ways in these two realms, it often gets confusing because it sounds contradictory. You know, in the psychological domain, a lot of emphasis is placed on creating ego strength, of actually creating a strong ego. You know, as a functioning being in the world. In Buddha Dharma, we're talking about realizing that there is no ego two very different levels. The ego of psychology refers to a certain healthy balance of mind certain balance of the forces of the mind which allows us to function, which which gives us some psychological health and strength. The ego talked about by the Buddha is the idea that within us there is some core, unchanging entity. I didn't... In Sanskrit or or Pali, the idea of Atman, some core right here, to whom experience is happening. This is what the Buddha said is an illusion. That actually there is no one behind experience. There's no little being inside, right? Or some little capsule. Or st- There's nothing here to whom experience happens. What we are is the process of changing experience. That's a very different perspective. And so it's possible to have a strong psychological ego and be egoless at the same time. And in fact the whole practice is developing this mental strength, this mental balance. It's creating a space of mental health, creating that psychological ego. And it's also opening us through our own perception, not through a belief system. It's, it's through our own investigation of actually what's here. We begin to see that what's arising in each moment are two things. There's consciousness and an object. In every moment of experience, that is what is there. There's the knowing of an object. Knowing of a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation, a thought, an emotion. And as our perception becomes more and more refined, we perceive for ourselves this process of consciousness and object, knowing an object, arising and vanishing, arising and vanishing, arising and vanishing, moment after moment. What we call self, what we call I, is this process. What is it that's deciding the ego doesn't exist? It's not a decision. Because it's not kind of an intellectual deduction. Rather, in some way, it's grace. It's the grace of clear seeing. There's observing, 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 observing. Our mind gets quieter. We stop identifying so much with things. And we see the process in a clearer and clearer way until we become, with awareness this process of knowing an object, arising and passing. It's as if we become... (laughs) 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 we become this egoless process. What's interesting, sort of as our practice continues, is to see the ways in which we create the sense of self. Now, if there's no ego, if there's no I, how come we all believe it? You know, you go up on the street, is there an I, is there a self, do you exist? (laughs) Everybody will say yes. Where does this belief in self come from? It's, interesting to just be watching the process of the mind to see how it's created. And it's created through the working of one particular quality of mind, which is the quality of identifying with phenomena. There's a thought. Thought arises in the mind. I'm sure you've seen the difference between When the thought arises and we're lost in it, we're identified with it, there's a sense of I'm thinking and the experience of the thought arising with awareness and we just see that the thought comes and goes. But it doesn't belong to anybody, it's just a phenomena. It's the process of identification with objects, whether it's a thought or a sensation or an emotion or an image or self-doubt, whatever, The objects themselves are just coming and going. There's no one behind them. If we identify with them, in that moment we've created a sense of self. When there's no identification with them, there's no self. The power of mindfulness in each moment is that there's the awareness of phenomena without this identification. And so, moment after moment, we're residing in this place of selflessness, of emptiness, emptiness of self. And that's where the great freedom is. One Sri Lankan monk expressed it very succinctly. He said, no self, no problem. (laughs) You know, where do the problems come from? They come because we identify with things. We take them to be who we are. And that's a massive hallucination. That's delusion. But it's a delusion that we've become very habituated to. The beauty of the practice is that moment after moment we can be living in this space of freedom, of non-identification, of simply allowing this process of knowing an object to come and go, come and go, come and go. Not creating this, this ego. Is self-delusion the near enemy of awareness? Whenever awareness gets strong, so does my sense of self. Oops, the sense of self. (laughs) And so I fall off the horse. This is quite natural. Especially in the beginning of practice when we're just tentatively exploring the dimension of strong awareness. And you know, we're going back and forth into the awareness being strong and then it's weak and we're scattered and we're wandering a lot and then it's strong again. The novelty of it, I think, creates the sense of self in it. It's like the first, oh, I'm really concentrated now, you know, I'm really aware, I like it. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's quite natural as we kind of are just moving into it. What happens is that this power of awareness actually becomes a great strength and a great attribute it becomes the place we're living, not a place we 're visiting you know and as it becomes more natural you know for us in our experience, that overlay of identification with it falls away it really becomes ordinary mind in that sense, and so we're not becoming self-conscious in the awareness. At times, in the beginning, when that sense of self-consciousness comes, there's no need to worry about it. It's just you can note that that sense is there without breaking the rhythm, just very gentle. oh, self-consciousness. So you make a note, you come, ba- you come back to the breath, There need be no interruption in this flaw. A self-consciousness and comparing also elements of aversion. I think it's not so much aversion. The self-consciousness comes from this identification factor, we identify with something. The comparing mind is its own, it's its, its own category. Um, Steve spoke the other night about kilesas, which are the defilements of mind, those qualities of mind which cause trouble, which cause suffering. One of the qualities of mind and there are there are a lot of lists you know in this in actually all the traditions of Buddhism, but in this one in particular love lists you know there's, there's ten of this and four of this and eleven of this, and there are lots of lists of These defilements of mind, they're called defilements, they're called cankers, they're called boils, they're called (laughs) (laughs) eruptions and corruptions, and and each one is its own special list. (laughs) And it's good to have a sense of humor about uh, the jargon. Um, But it does point to something, which is that they are all attributes of the mind. They're those unwholesome attributes, unwholesome in the sense that They cause suffering. That's their nature. One of these defilements is called conceit. And the meaning of conceit is the mind which compares ourselves to others in any way. Compares ourselves as being better than, or the same as, or worse than. Any comparing is this this defilement of conceit. Because in any comparison, there is this sense of I am, I am better, I am worse, I am equal, but it all refers back to a feeling of I am. Some good news and bad news about this. It's actually the same news, (laughs) which is that this is a defilement which is not uprooted from the mind until the final stage of enlightenment. (laughs) And it's really interesting, because one of the ones that's uprooted at the very first stage of enlightenment is the belief in self. We really go beyond this belief that there is an I right at the first opening to the unconditioned. But the defilement of conceit, it's this sense of self even though we understand that the sense of self is itself not self, but it still remains until a lot more purification is done. And so the bad news is that it's around for a long time. The good news is that since it's around for a long time, we might as well get a little tolerant of it, you know, and not be judgmental of it. And so when the comparing mind comes, just to see, it, oh, here it is, you know, and not to be surprised, and to begin to work with it in an accepting way. <laughs> I'm just, I was just reviewing all the mini-bouts, of comparing, comparing mind in, in my mind, in my practice, and realizing how when we're caught in it, it is the cause of so much suffering. You know, one retreat I did, was the first one I did with Upandita. It was a very intense retreat. It was, it was his first visit to the States and he was really being quite fierce. We were all a little nervous. We didn't know who this guy was. And, you know, we all really wanted to get into our practice. So we're all working very hard. It's quite a rigorous situation. And after some weeks, I saw people writing little notebooks. And my mind, and, and each day, somebody else would start writing in a notebook. And so my mind thought, gee, Upandita must be asking people to do something. I wonder when he's going to ask me. (laughs) And especially the people who started writing the notebooks were all the people who I thought were really the good yogis. (laughs) And and day after day I go in for an interview and he doesn't say anything about notebooks. (laughs) And I'm feeling worse and worse and worse. And then after a while... Everybody started using them, even the people I thought who were bad yogis. (laughs) (laughs) So then I thought, well, I must be doing so well, I don't need a notebook. (laughs) (laughs) And my mind just... (laughs) It drove me nuts. (laughs) And at the end I found out, Upandis never asked anybody to give a notebook. (laughs) People were just doing it as a way of remembering, you know, and being able to report their experience. So this comparing mind, (laughs) it's really helpful to get a handle on it, to see it, to see how it functions without getting caught in, without getting identified with it, to recognize it as a source of suffering that is going to come up a lot. It's not going to go away for a long time. And so, we kind of make friends with it, right? Which means not judging it and also not getting lost in it. Are there stages people who practice Vipassana commonly go through over time? This points to an interesting raging Buddhist debate between the gradual schools and the sudden schools. Is enlightenment gradual or is it sudden? I never understood this debate and whole schools have, <laughs> have grown up around this issue because it always seemed to me that it's both. Enlightenment is always sudden. It's grace. It just happens. And all the time until that moment is gradual. (laughs) (laughs) I could never get the polarity that that has grown up around this issue. We practice. We create the field. We prepare the ground. And when the mind opens, it always happens suddenly and spontaneously. It's not that anything we do creates the unconditioned. Everything in this, in this mind-body, is conditioned phenomena. It's all arising and passing, conditioned by causes. The unconditioned is beyond this. It's something like having a path which goes to a mountain, the path doesn't create the mountain. The path is not the cause for the mountain. The path is not the condition for the mountain. The mountain is there. There's a path which leads to it. The unconditioned is there, and it's there all the time. It's not something that is created in time. We could call it the ultimate ground of being, or the ultimate reality, or the unformed, or the unborn, and there are a million names for it. And our practice is the path which leads to it. It doesn't create it. And so what we're doing is just walking on this path, and when the conditions are right, the mind opens to this other reality, and that can happen any time. It happens when the mind is in a perfect balance. There are some signposts along this path that many people commonly pass. And I don't think it's universal. I think that people can open in many different ways. But it's one of the common, it's one of the common sets of experience. And I don't want to go into all the signposts now, but just to highlight a few of the major experiences, the first thing that needs to happen is for the mind to develop a certain level of concentration, and it's called access concentration. And it's just that place where instead of struggling to keep the mind in the present, the mind is resting in the present. And occasionally, and, and. even, even at times frequently, it will go off. But the momentum of awareness and concentration has reached such a point that there's a natural rebound to that place of mindfulness. So that becomes the place we're residing. We're living in this natural flow of awareness, the natural flow of mindfulness, through the power of access concentration. And a lot of what we're doing in the beginning of a practice is developing this. You know, every time you come back every time there's that effort just to come back, to sustain the attention, this quality of access concentration is deepening. When we've reached that place of ease, and somebody, I think it's it's later on in the list, asked, uh, does it get any easier, the practice? (laughs) It's been nine years. It gets easier at this place. Now, this is the place where all of a sudden we drop in, just to the natural unfolding of the Dharma, Um, and it gets a lot easier. But in the beginning, it's the work. It's the work that has to be put to generate this. From this place of access concentration, we then begin to observe this mind and body from a whole range of different perspectives. We go through periods of tremendous clarity, real brilliance of mind, brilliance of consciousness, seeing things with tremendous luminosity and tremendous clarity. That doesn't last. We go through stages of opening to deeper and deeper understandings of suffering. Not theoretical. We really open to that in ourselves. We see that side of phenomena, that side of the Dharma. We have the experience of that tremendous joy and luminosity. We have the experience of this tremendous suffering. We come to a place of profound equanimity. Having been through both of those others, the mind comes, it matures to a place where it is not moved. It is not moved by pleasant things. It's not moved by unpleasant things. There's a tremendous deep, deep balance. Mind is very smooth at this point. It's like a deep flowing river. You know, it's out of this mature place of practice, this place of equanimity, when the conditions are right, that the mind can open to what's beyond this mind and body. So this is the overlay. You know, this is kind of an overview of how the path unfolds. One of the things my first teacher told me, which was has been a tremendous help uh, in my practice, very early on he said, in spiritual practice, time is not a factor. You now we are so time-oriented and we want everything when we want it and that just is not relevant in a spiritual journey patience is grace we practice and there are lots of cycles you see cycles in one day of practice you see cycles of a retreat of a retreat you see cycles over a year i've seen cycles over ten years this journey is a lifetime of practice. It's not a question of coming for ten days. You know, It's this exploration of something that is so deep and so profound and goes to, goes to the very heart, goes to that Buddha nature, to the unconditioned. And so to let go of the idea of time, and it's just doing it. And We do it, and we surrender, and the Dharma takes care of the rest. <coughs> there were years in my practice, there were cycles of years that were tremendously difficult and frustrating and felt like I wasn't getting any place. You know, and there were other times when everything seemed just to click into place. And so we need a really big perspective on this you know, and the confidence to keep going. <clears throat> if Vipassana practice has such side effects as yogi mind and other hallucinatory phenomena, then how can one depend on the practice for the discovery of the truth? (laughs) There are some very clever minds out here. (laughs) There are, I think, two ways, two approaches to understanding this question. One is the understanding that not only are the hallucinatory phenomena on retreat. Basically, we live our lives in hallucination. Our whole life is is one big hallucination. And the Buddha pointed out three major ones. We take what is impermanent to be permanent. And we may think we don't do that, we may think, oh yes, I know everything's changing, because we do know it intellectually. But if we really know it, if we were living it, there would not be any attachment. I mean, nobody tries to hold on to a water bubble, because we know. It's gone. You know? If we really knew the impermanence, there would be no clinging in the mind. And so just look we should look at all the times of clinging and attachment in our lives. It's the working of this hallucination. We're being fooled, we're being deceived. We take, the second big hallucination is that we take what is basically unsatisfying to be satisfying. And we spend a good part of our lives trying to get pleasant experiences Thinking they're going to satisfy us in some final complete way, and their very nature they cannot be satisfying because they keep changing they're impermanent, but we keep we keep waiting and I see so often in my life living kind of in my mind for the next event, you know. <laughs> And, of course, it's just like all the past events. <laughs> they come and we experience them and they go. It's, it's like trying to scoop water with a butterfly net. You know, it doesn't work. And so that's another basic hallucination. That we think things are going to be satisfying when they are inherently not. It's not to say that they may not be enjoyable. They're, they're enjoyable, but, but very ephemeral. And the third hallucination is that we take what is not self to be self so these are, the, these are the major hallucinations of our life. Yogi mind is really just a very little piece of this. What happens on retreat and really in the whole process of awakening is that we begin to see how hallucinations are working in our mind. So it's precisely becoming aware of the yogi mind phenomena, we take it out of the shadow realm. We take it out of the realm of being unconscious, We say, oh yeah, here it is, I see it. That's the way, actually, of freeing oneself from it. And so much of our practice is opening up to what has been held in the shadows. Those parts of ourselves that we don't want to see, that are uncomfortable, that are painful, and slowly integrating that into our awareness. Um, I don't recall reading about Kundalini in the Buddhist texts. Does Buddhism recognize Kundalini? The spiritual literature talks about the importance of the relationship between the student and teacher. In this country, with so many students and so few teachers, this doesn't seem possible. What do you think about this? Also, how does one go about choosing a teacher? How can a student know what is authentic? Um, In many of the Buddhist traditions, there's not uh, an emphasis placed on kundalini energy. That is not the aim or the goal of practice, to raise this energy. What happens in the course of practice is that tremendous energy begins to be released. It's not done in a particularly directed way. It's not something we're trying to do. It comes as the natural outcome of growing concentration and deeper awareness. The energy channels and the energy centers in our body begin to become very, very powerful. Um, And so it's handled much more in an organic way, just being with things as they unfold, with the emphasis being not on having particular experiences happen, but rather on cultivating the proper relationship to experience. Because that's where the wisdom is. The wisdom is not in Kundalini, and it's not in bright lights, and it's not in any particular experience. The wisdom is in how we're relating. Are we relating with identification, are we relating with greed, are we relating with aversion, or is there mindfulness? Are we seeing things as essentially empty of self, empty of I? Um, Maybe just one or two more questions. It's hard to, <laughs> hard to choose. Okay, I'll, I'll put two together here. Oh, oh right. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Last half about uh, teachers and relationship to teachers. Different traditions uh, see that relationship in different ways. In some spiritual traditions, uh, there is a lot of emphasis on placed on relationship with the guru, and it becomes this kind of lifelong connection. Right? Um, in other traditions, the teacher is seen as a spiritual friend and somebody who's there to help guide, which is very much the spirit of. Uh, the Buddhist teachings especially in the Theravada tradition of of which this is a part, Uh, the Buddha himself said that he cannot enlighten anybody else he only points the way. Teachers can inspire and they can help generate energy but we all have to do the work ourselves in some fashion or other In the Buddha's time, many people would go to him for instruction and then go off to practice and do it. And if they had questions, they'd come back and they'd go off and do it. And I've always appreciated that spirit of self-reliance, you know, that the Dharma is here. The truth is right here to be discovered. We need some guidance in learning how to make the journey. And it's helpful to get that guidance, but to really see that it's our own work, and that we can do it ourselves, um, it creates for non it 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 makes for non-dependence, um, which I think is very helpful. It's not to undervalue. The help somebody can give who's familiar with the path, who's familiar with the workings of the mind and just sees all the ways the mind can get caught, really helps us to unhook. Tremendously valuable and, and expedites the process. Somebody asked at this conference we were at in Los Angeles with the Dalai Lama, somebody was asking him about this question, given the different problems that have arisen in different spiritual scenes with teachers and his response was uh, be careful (laughs) you know really take time before you know you really make a major commitment or a major surrender to somebody for a long period of time you should really Check it out, you know, so that you really see, you observe that person, you observe how they're behaving, are they living, what they're saying. You know, not to abandon, not to abandon our own innate wisdom, our own innate common sense in terms of, in terms of teachers. It's very important. Um, So, I think there's, there's all of that to consider. Maybe we should just sit for a few minutes. This a lot more, but some other time. Rest in the simplicity of each moment. There's just the knowing and an object. the awareness of an in-breath, awareness of an out-breath, awareness of a thought, awareness of a sensation. No struggle, not trying to get anything. Settling back into the simplicity of the rhythm of things arising and passing. It's as if we settle back into the unfolding of the Dhamma.
2: I'd like to talk tonight about seeing with depth. A lot of us in this room can tell uh, similar stories growing up in a place that when we were children it was rural or country, pristine, and as we grew up, if we return to our homes today it's all developed. I grew up in such a place in the South Shore of Hawaii where as a child I played in forests and swamps and beaches and, and valleys that still had relics, lava rock relics from a 2,000 year old indigenous native culture, building foundations and um, little monuments they built to the gods and goddesses of agriculture and fishing, spiritual power. These things were still there along with uh, all the legends telling about them. But now they're all shopping centers and house, suburban houses and schools. They're gone. I also used to come to California a lot. Now, my mother's family were farmers and ranchers in the south of uh, Big Sur. So when they still had those, I would go there between 9 and 18, 11 hour prop jet flights, not jet, prop flights from Honolulu to San Francisco and spend my summers there, uh, walking the hills and riding horseback with uncles and aunts. And they'd always tell stories about the new, that they heard of Native Americans in the area and in certain parts of the land. Uh, we'd find uh, relics of the Native Americans, mortar and pestle things, arrowheads, that kind of thing. Uh, My eyes always twinkled, you know, when they told these stories, captivated by tales of their uh, hunting prowess and uh, gathering abilities, their knowledge of the herbs and plants. It awoke this real sense of wonder and I was always really intrigued by how these early people lived. They seemed to have such a powerful communion with each other and with nature. They knew the way of nature. I think we we miss this, this community and the ritual that went along with it that symbolized a way of living that was really meaningful within and between As you all know, I'm sure nature still has a powerful pull and is often really healing to us. It's a real shift of space. Michelle and I spend a lot of time in hiking around the mountains, the interior of the islands that we live on, or going out to sea in our kayaks, taking friends when they come who maybe have just have come from cities And it's always so rejuvenating. We come out of the ocean or come out of the mountains feeling really renewed, refreshed. It's a real space changer. Even when our 15-year-old daughter is visiting, she can set aside her interest in poison and motley crew and Guns N' Roses and all these rock groups that she's incessantly plugged into in her Walkman and go and enjoy getting into guavas and mangoes and um, the birds and the power of nature. It's a strong call to all of us, this wilderness. Our roots are in it. The interest for me has led to a lot of um, time spent with a, in archaeology as a kind of amateur archaeologist with a friend in Hawaii who is an archaeologist and we have spent mm, several summers and other periods of time when I'm home and and uh, he can uh, hire me exploring burial caves and uh, really piecing together these past cultures and we have a lot of fun doing it. It's a real motley crew. We're kind of a cross between Sherlock Holmes, uh, Indiana Jones, and the Ghostbusters—you know—we come rolling onto the job site. Uh, usually, we make it before noon, and uh, with our, uh, you know, our music box box and our cooler of, of um, soda and juice and whatnot. And uh, there's a lot of camaraderie, you know, in the work. And it's serious work, too. I mean, he's a skilled archaeologist, so we take the time to unravel, you know, with paint brushes and small artist brushes and even dental tools to open up and see what was there, try to piece together with the information that comes. It seems these people, these ancient people, uh, knew a lot that we have forgotten. My interest carries over when I go to Australia or South Africa. I'm interested in the Aboriginal people and I read their myths or look at their art. And it seems they, they knew a certain kind of language with the wilderness. They had they could hear the call of the wild. They knew it was up. They had this rapport and it was special and, and really connected. When I bring in my dharma understanding to this, I realize that these people were us. and know, uh, the Buddha often spoke how rare it is to see, to come across, to look into anyone's eyes who we haven't at one time uh, been very close and intimate with along the long stretch of life and death and rebirth and samsara. So even if you look at it through this karmic law of rebirth, or if you look at it through the transmission of genes, you know, we're still quite connected and we still have um, the essence of what these people were, how they lived. I sense, I find, that mostly these people were were very connected with each other and they lived in a way that was cooperative with with other groups, with other tribes like themselves within their own tribes and cooperative with nature as opposed to the last few thousand years that seems it has become more of a dominator or competitive kind of social cultural structure. And I think the reason why we miss that is because what gets awakened by our roots in the wilderness is, is a very deep way of seeing, a seeing with depth. What happens to me when I get in touch with these cultures or in this nature is the feeling of a primordial memory of a time when as a culture we had this kind of depth of seeing, this quality of awareness, this connectedness with with other living beings and with all life around us. The name in Pali for this quality of awareness that I want to talk about is called sati. And sati means literally recollection or immediate remembering. It's the power of mind, extraordinary power of awakening the mind that knows just what's happening in the moment, in us and around us, in the moment and in each successive moment. Other names for it are attention, carefulness, mindfulness, simple awareness. The real intention behind sati is observing power, the power just to observe things as they are, like a mirror reflection that doesn't change anything or add anything or want anything to be different, but is reflecting just what appears. How would we normally describe, you know, if someone asked us how you're doing, you know, how is your body or mind? Usually we say, oh, I feel good, or I feel bad, or I feel tired, or I feel painful. If we answer it through the lens of this sati, this is kind of attention that's keyed at a very special pitch, a pitch that just has the ability to go right into experience and know it just as it is, we might answer differently. We might talk about, Waves of tingling sensation, or pressure, or light vibration, or or soft vibration, or heat, or coolness, or warmth, hardness, softness. Because those are the way, those are the sensations that actually describe what we call body. Sati makes visible what's invisible. And it does that by investigating what's called the four foundations of mindfulness. Foundation of body, bodily experience. Foundation of feelings, feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experience. Foundation of the mind, various kinds of thoughts as colored by um, moods of anger or love, moods of generosity or greed, moods of clarity or delusion. Investigating the foundation, the fourth foundation of mental objects, which is everything else in our experience, including seeing, and smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, thinking, all the other mental states, everything else that we can possibly call our experience. The unique quality about this scene with depth, the quality of this awareness is its characteristic of being pre-verbal, pre-symbolic. It is, it is catching things before the idea of it, before the thought of it, before it has proliferated into something else, something it may be not. So we use the noting. The noting acts as a kind of the Koan. It takes us right to the edge of thought and then drops the mind into the current of what's happening before thought. It is the experience before it arises into symbols or language. You call it seeing deeply because it is a combination of feeling and sensing and knowing all together. When it it drops into this current, it is face to face with the immediacy of experience, not colored by our fears or by our desires. That direct perception, It's like being able to see something for the first time. Whenever you have that first time kind of perception, that's a pure moment of this sati, this seeing deeply. This practice is about prolonging those moments of pre-verbal awareness, prolonging those moments of seeing things just as they are, before thought and learning how to reorient our lives to the moment so that we're able to be on the crest of experience of whatever is arising and passing, continuous wave of appearing and vanishing phenomena. Five or six years ago Michelle and I had a house guest for I think six or seven months man by the name of Paul Reps, who he disliked us to call him Reps. He's about 95 now, 96, so he was 89 at the time. He's well known for about 20 different books including Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, Goldfish Signatures, and many other really nice books. He was a Sumie Japanese artist and um, self-made Zen master, very iconoclastic, you know, really put down anything that uh, seemed to uphold itself as an institutionalized uh, anything, religion or social structure. He was really one of the originals. He, was in, he went to Burma in 1913 and on to India, you know, he was a young chap and ended up ended up living many years in Japan studying there the various people. He said he, he found all his Zen masters under the bridges. They were never in the temples. So he had this quality. A lot of people perceive him as this sort of cantankerous, you know, gruff and very direct person, which he has that side. But he also could play like a child. He had this combination, beautiful combination, of sagacious, you know, aged wisdom and childlike Qualities. The first thing he had me do when he moved in was construct um, a bamboo thing for chin-ups, for pull-ups. You know, which he never could do. He was too old for that. But he just liked trying to do it. You know, so he just put his hands up and, and pull. Um, the story I wanted to tell about him, in particular, because <laughs> I could go on and on about reps. I loved that man. <coughs> was uh, he started coming to our our Sunday sittings, which was just on the other side of the house, and uh, oh, he he arrived. You know, he arrived when he moved in with just a very small backpack and, and a folding a low folding lawn chair. That was his possessions. So he came, that's so how he left. So he used to come to our sittings, and he'd come in with his lawn chair, unfold it into the living room, and uh, he loved the vipassana practice. He'd never been exposed to it, and it, Actually it uh, inspired him to write uh, five little books or six little books, he called it Six Books in a Bag. He wrote them in paper and had them printed out and put them in the bag and sent them out to his publisher. Uh, so he um, he was getting up early from the sitting because he didn't like to sit more than thirty-five minutes. You know, That was his limit, or thirty minutes, he said. Even the Zen people who sit thirty-five minutes is too long. So he'd often get up in the middle of the sitting. And one time he got up, you know, he's old, he's 89, and he's folding his lawn chair and, oh, in the meantime, Chandra, our daughter, who's this time eight, she's in the kitchen, sneaking with her friend's cookies and juice, you know, had their plastic cups of juice and cookies, and they're the, quietly on the floor, we don't know that. So I'm finishing, just finishing up the talk, and Reps is getting up and he's going back to his room, which is through the kitchen, and he stumbles on his folding lawn chair and it hits the kitchen door and the kitchen door swings open and he crashes into a teapot and you hear this tumbling and crashing crashes onto the floor and everyone all this we're all really worried about him jumping up and what we hear is he's crashing into the midst of Chandra and her friend is oh I fell into a party (laughs) 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 and he was okay that's exactly how Reps was and is still. i will talk more about him later. Being on that, con- that crest of the continuous wave of experience, right there for it, just in the moment with what's happening, that's this quality of sati. It has the characteristic of non superficiality or non wobbling, which is why I call it depth. I call it seeing with depth. The image from our Pali text describes it as this. If you throw a cork and a stone into a stream, the cork floats and gets caught in the current, just drifts along with the current or with the wind. Whereas the stone sinks right to the bed, sinks right into the heart of the river, goes right into it. And that's this quality of sati. It goes right into the heart of the matter, right into sensation, thought, a mood of mind, and knows it just as it is. The conditioning of our minds, particularly the cultural condition, is so radically different from this sinking ability, from this... um, Characteristic of depth. All the distorted cultural rituals we have today are an assault to our senses and to our sensibility. So we have, it's very hard to get to what's real, you know, to really appreciate, to get to our wilderness roots, to know and to understand our culture really well, because it it no longer honors this deep humility and respect and quality of integrity that cultures once did when they had when they were firmly rooted and had the rituals to appreciate that connection and that kind of awareness, that kind of way of life. So there's this massive loss of depth, you know, and and the appropriate ritual that connects us and reminds us to be who we are, to be feel the connection with each other, and to feel the connection with nature. So, what our work is, is learning again how to relax into this wilderness mind, how to reawaken it, how to bring it into our lives and apply it, not just in the retreat, in the meditation context of sitting and walking, but in all of our life. Reconnect with that the power of pre-verbal awareness and to detach from just floating on the surface, being caught by the current of um, misperception. So, many people, if we ask them, you know, are you aware? I think, of course, you know I'm aware, aware of who I am and where I am and where I'm going. But actually it's a mirage to imagine that we're really present, you know, that we're really precisely in the moment. It's this quality of bare attention whereby we begin to discover what it means to be present or not to be present. The first thing we start to see when the mindfulness kicks in, even for a few moments, is how often we're not present. And that sometimes is quite disturbing and overwhelming. But it's very healthy and very empowering to get that insight. Our ordinary consciousness builds on an initial impression and launches off in a whole interpretive course. So it takes an initial sensation, say, or a thought, and right after the immediate bare attention comes and goes, and the consciousness quickly passes over that, pay our attention, and it creates a concept and constructs, which are sets of concepts, and then weaves these constructs into all kinds of interpretive schemes and categories and assumptions. Very soon we're just we're we're lost in it. It's like viewing the moon through the clouds. You know the original is gone, and we've we've labeled it, and interpreted it, and evaluated it, analyzed it. It's not what it was. It's hidden by our views and opinions. So we're re- removed from the immediacy of what's really happening. There's a term for this in Nepali called "pukpancha," means mental proliferation or embellishment. Or elaboration, mental elaboration. And it's this papancha process that takes the mind, removes it from the immediacy, and it's like looking at something, instead of from depth, looking at something from a distance. We've really lost it, you know, we're just not in touch with it. And that's how we can culturally manipulate things. Because when we're really in touch with our wilderness roots, we can't be doing the things that we're doing to our Earth today. It's impossible. Through this embellishment process, it works both passively and actively. Passively, it works like a veil, like a screen, so that we can't really see clearly what's there. That's that moon through the clouds perspective. But it's also very active. And that's where something gets embellished to such a a degree that we're actually seeing what it isn't. We turn it into something else entirely. And, And we, for example, chase happiness in a direction where we will never find it. We mistake things for what they aren't. And we look at a part, an aspect of our experience in our body, in our mind, and we identify with it. We take it for self, for something perhaps unchanging, static, solidified, congealed. That's where we stop being fluid, stop being who we can be if we're always open to our constantly changing selfless phenomena. It's like looking for the truth through words or through books. In the 60s, one of my first teachers uh, was a Tai Chi master from from China. He had just come to Hawaii. And uh, in addition to learning martial arts, I was studying some meditation with him. Uh, and at that time, I was really getting fired up, you know, this whole 60s movement. And it didn't seem, the answers didn't seem to lay in, in political protests so much that it took, took us steps deeper, as we all, many of us, found out. So I started to read all the holy books, and I'd come to class. This went on for a year or two. Come to class, stack of books under my arm, you know, all about liberation or spiritual path or various kinds of practices, and I was just, you know, into these books and into the information. I couldn't get enough, and trying to get these, elicit these philosophical conversations with with uh, Mr. Pang, which he would do sometimes. After a year or two, um, I went to class one day, had my books, asked him some question about something in the book about liberation. And just in a moment he kind of stood there, uh, tilted his head in this kind of quizzical stance, locked in on my eyes, and he said, Stephen, Be aware of chasing your own shadow for the rest of your life," he said. There is no liberation. There's only now. Boy, I like that answer. I didn't have a clue what he meant, but it it sounded real good, you know. (laughs) And I didn't stop reading my books and looking for liberation. But slowly over the years, I was a little more wary you know, of putting it all into the books or all into philosophical discussions. It's a little more letting the books become more of a guide than an answer. So this Papancha process becomes the basis for our projections. You know, we take these internal constructs, project them out onto objects in the world and relate to them as if they're true, as if they're real and they're usually at least screened and fogged over, if not completely distorted. The way this happens, the, the fabrication process happens from what we call the kilesas, those dark shadow tendencies deep in the mind that are lie dormant, that lie latent. What they do is create and project these elaborations, these embellishments, out into experience and then use that projection as a hook to surface. That makes the Kalesas, that makes them move from their dormant category into an active category. When they're active, you know, the Kalesas are this rooted in those, those psychological tendencies of greed, of grasping, of aversion, anger, irritation, of delusion. It includes all the possible shadowy forces of our lives jealousy, envy, conceit, pride. These are the forces that create these embellishments, project them out, use them as hooks to surface and create their, their stuff. It's wisdom that corrects these distortions, these veiling and distorting qualities of mind. Wisdom, in order to do it, needs accessibility. It's sati that makes all experience accessible. That is, it clears the way. It brings the conceptual process into clarity so that we're seeing it as it really is. That moment before it elaborates, proliferates. That's when wisdom, that's when insight can get in there and and heal those dark tendencies. You know, take away that distorting characteristic of the Kalesas. It's the ability to keep the mind at a level of bare attention. It's a relaxed mode of observing. It's It's not a tight and tense trying to pounce on objects. It's a very soft falling back into the flow of experience to see things clearly. When Michelle and I were in Botswana, riding in a jeep through the uh, nature reserve, the the African guide who was with us um, he was so laid back and relaxed. I thought, how can he ever point out animals to us? He didn't even seem to be looking. And we were searching out there with binoculars and telephoto lenses, you know, looking for zebras and elephants and rhinos and lions. And this guy was in the back, just so relaxed, you know, and cooled out. And he had the most laid-back attitude to everything. You know, we stopped for lunch, we offered him, uh, Michelle was offering him our basket that had sandwiches and fruits for all of us for lunch. Just offered it to him, Lapata was his name, to take some, you know, to take his share. He just took the whole basket, you know. <laughs> was very thankful and just started to eat, proceeded to eat the whole lunch, you know, we all starve.
1: <laughs>
2: In his laid-backness, you know, he, he had that ability that many of us lack, that the indigenous cultures had, to gaze, to see things by gazing, not by staring. So what happened? We'd be driving around you know, and the rest of us would be looking and searching and staring, and all of a sudden Lapata would do something like, you know, stop, you know, and point in a direction that didn't even look like he was looking in. And we looked and sure enough, you know, there was giraffe or zebra. He just knew, he knew the land. It was like he was able to scope out shifts in light and shadow in the landscape. And that signaled to him, you know, a life force out there. It was quite remarkable. And that's this ability to see with depth, to sink into things in this relaxed mode. Soft mind, alert but soft. This single mental state, sati, has such colossal strength. It's just incredible. Along with this characteristic of, of depth, that is of non-superficiality or non wobbling, is the nature of gathering. It's, it works kind of like a magnet where it pulls in other associated states, allies of it. So it's the causative force for creating this extraordinary quality of consciousness, of mind, whole mind. If we, to think of consciousness just very briefly to describe the Buddhist perception of the mind. What we call cheetah is a moment of experience, also a moment of consciousness. And it has several facets. The chief factor in a moment of consciousness is cheetah itself. Citta knows something, has the characteristic of just knowing something, it knows a sight or a sound or a sensation or a thought. It doesn't act alone. Along with this moment of citta or consciousness or knowing, is a whole lot of other concomitants, mental factors that color it, that give it a certain um, quality. Some of them arise in every moment in states like uh, feeling is always there, feeling pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Um, perception is always there, ability to perceive, to mark an object with something that distinguishes it, like color. Um, Also, there's volition, that force of will is there every moment of consciousness. Uh, Concentration is there. Some attention is there. Along with that, these are called universals, they're there in every moment of consciousness. Along with that is any number of other skillful or unskillful concomitants or mental states that also color it, give it a tone, to give it its major characteristic in that moment. So for example, greed might be there. It has the nature to stick to things. Aversion might be there which strikes out or pushes away. Delusion could be there. It clouds that moment of consciousness. On the other hand, mindfulness could be there. If mindfulness is there in a moment of experience, a moment of consciousness, greed isn't there, aversion isn't there, delusion isn't there. They cannot coexist. And this is what I mean by that gathering power, that magnetizing power of sati. What it pulls in is certain other states that include non-greed, which is a state that may be like detachment, it may be like renunciation, like openness or um, generosity. Whatever you might think of, whatever the bent of mind is in that moment when non-greed is present, non-hatred is there. Metta, compassion, joy, those all describe non-hatred. Non-delusion is there, the mind that is, at least in that moment, clear. Later on it may mature into actual uh, what we call panya, wisdom. This is in a single moment of sati, a single moment of mindfulness. Those characteristics are there. So is energy. So is stepped up um, concentration and other factors. They're drawn into this state. Okay. So, when we have a mind like that, it's what gives us that power of reawakening that quality of mind, of seeing deeply, because it reconditions the mind. It removes those tendencies to see things in a distorted way, or to see things toned or colored by grasping, or by anger, and instead just sinks into experience as it is, that relaxed being with what's happening. If anger comes up, and when we're really mindful of it, it tends to fall away, if only for a moment. You know, if anger strong, it will keep coming back for a while. But every moment of pure sati removes in that moment the anger or the greed or the delusion. This is the reconditioning power of sati. So what it begins to do is is to defragment the mind. When there's this moment of pure awareness, the mind isn't scattered, it's not off, it's not divided. It doesn't know any difference, any separations between one part of itself and another. It's a whole, complete, unified, collected, powerful mind state. When we're really in touch with that, we don't know any difference between what we today call civilization and wilderness. The Native Americans and many other cultures didn't even have a name for wilderness. To them, civil life and, and wilderness were the same. It wasn't divided. Today our minds are so fragmented and our work is again trying to bring that collectiveness, that unification back to the mind. This sati, with its gathering power, is doing that in every moment that we are mindful. It is very difficult work and we really need to appreciate that. We need all the encouragement we can get from wherever we can get it, whoever we can get it from, you know, as much as we can get it. It's scary at times. We feel real open. We feel real vulnerable. We feel raw. We feel exposed. When we touch down to any place of depth, and you know, if it's a deep place of feeling joy or love, the price of that are deep feelings of fear or anger. Similarly, if we go into deep pain, deep fear, the price of that is going to be This liberated energy of of joy and of clarity, released, abundant, joyful, loving energy. That's what happens when we go deep. That's why it's both so difficult and painful. At the same time, it's so incredibly uh, rewarding. Often, we need to just trust in the difficulties that come up The very difficulty that might be our present experience is posing a riddle, so to speak, you know, the vipassana koan. Do we have the strength at that time to go into it or not? You know, we need to respect that. We need to follow the sense of our own limitations when we can go in, you know, when it's okay, when we're going to have the strength, or when perhaps we're too vulnerable, you know, we don't have the strength, and then it's skillful to pull back. But to be willing to look, to recognize the the difficulty, and perhaps take little steps into the direction of what's difficult. I'd like to read a quote from Letters to a Young Poet by Rainer Maria Rilke. And if only we arrange our life in accordance with the principle which tells us that we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us as the most alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races, the myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses? Perhaps all the dragons in our lives Are princesses who are only waiting to see us act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is, in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love. characteristic of of depth characteristic of gathering other powerful associated mind states sati has a very powerful function as well it's the function we call the non-disappearing power or the power of constancy and this is the aspect of awareness that and all the associated states of sati that stays with what's happening. Described classically, as our Upandita, our teacher, likes to do in breaking down all these words, when he breaks down the word satipatthana, the full word meaning mindfulness or foundations of mindfulness, he talks about it as the power of approaching an object and falling into it immediately. Secondly, that the mindfulness immerses itself, enters fully into the object, and then it stands upon the object with sharpness and clarity, presence and balance. And finally, it spreads over and covers the whole object, staying with it. And all in a flash, this happens. It's a lot to me like surfing, where when you approach the wave to catch it, you know, you paddle real hard to get Feeling the, the power of the wave, the approaching wave, starts to fall upon the board, or the board falls upon the wave. And then you get into its current, you get into its force. It picks you up. And then you stand on it and find balance and clarity, sharpness, tuck into the board, you know, tuck into the wave. And finally you ride it out. You know, we call it thrusting in surfing lingo, where you you stay right into the wave, balanced, and you play with it. It's the same with this awareness. You enter into an object, a sensation, say, of pressure. You go into it, feel it, stay with it when it's, as long as it's predominant, cover the whole area to investigate it, and when it passes, you go on to the next object, just, just in a flash, just in a moment. It's a lot like watching nature, you know, when we watch objects that we love in nature, like a falling star streaking across the cosmos. It grabs your attention, you want to see it to its very end, you know, to its no longer there, that just flashes out of existence altogether. It's like looking at it the way a hawk might observe uh, its prey when it's flying above the planet. Beautifully described by the environmental writer John Hay, says the the hawk's eye not only picks out its prey from great heights, it also sees into it and what surrounds it, so it is a knowing eye. The earth's particulars are in its mind. We We are addicted to proving phenomena, picking out single objects, facts, and images from their context so as to help us draw conclusions. To assess an entire landscape constructively means to be able to think in ecological terms, but this does not necessarily imply that we know it well enough to see into it. The hawk may be restricted to its kind of environment and its specialized means of dealing with it, but it also acts and sees in terms of its constant variance and complexities and not from the outside in. It is a part of a system that must have mystery added to it in order to match the fiery phenomena of the spirit. The answers the hawk might have to what and how it sees lies in the spontaneity of the earth itself which it follows to the end. In the aboriginals, they think like the land when they're gathering, when they're hunting, They think like mountains and plants and the earth and the animals. So there's an ecological oneness in that kind of environment. Our own field of phenomena is our own immediate experience, sensations, moods of mind, thoughts, sounds, smells, tastes, touch, This is the field that we're exploring, that we're looking, with this incredible quality of sati. Our waves and our falling star, our environment is the four foundations of mindfulness. Body, feelings, mind and mental objects. What brings us into this room is f- such vast forces you know, beyond any of our comprehension. What we call in the Pali parami means forces of purity or forces leading to completion are qualities within us all that we have developed over vast eons that are the conditions that lead one to awaken to a spiritual vocation or spiritual inclination in this lifetime. They're the forces that brought you here to do this retreat, to sit, that keep you on the path, forces like generosity and wisdom and energy and sila and patience and truthfulness renunciation, metta, equanimity, resolution. These are paramis. They're like a seed. and If you think of a seed, it has packed within it all its past, all the conditions of the past that led to it being a seed as well as it being the potential for everything that seed will be in the future. It's sati that nourishes and awakens this seed inside, these parami seeds. We have this power to awaken. We're opening up to let the Dhamma in so that we can allow the Dhamma to take over. As you can tell at times when you're sitting or walking, it's as if that sense of you just steps aside for some time, even if just for a few moments. And it's the power of Dhamma that then just takes over. It seems to be the Dhamma that is noticing phenomena, that is feeling phenomena, experiencing things, having insights, that is opening your heart, charging your whole being with this glow, this Dhamma love and care and clarity. Can we let, can we open and let our ancient wilderness roots carry us, connect us with the rhythms of the Dhamma, with the timing of the Dhamma. I'd like to close with this quote from the Immortal Wilderness. The truth is that we have no alternative but to re-educate ourselves in what we came from. Civilized life has never replaced its origins in the wilderness, meaning all of nature, the integral life of the earth, and has never risen above our dependence on it. We derive our sustenance from what we can neither improve upon nor finally, finally conquer. The world of life is not our foster child and dependent. It is quite the other way around. There is, finally, nothing but the wild in its rhythmic timing with the sun and stars. No aspiration lives without it. Let's sit for a few moments. Allow the rhythm of the Dharma to guide you and protect you on your way.
0: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.